Thank you for joining us today. We'll begin our study of 1 Corinthians. We will be discussing some of the divisions in the church in Corinth and how God has called the foolish of the world to shame the wise. So if you'll open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll begin our lesson. All right, I want to thank everybody for joining us and also thank you all who are listening in remote. We're going to begin our study of Corinthians. We spent a couple of months in Ephesians and we kind of wrapped up Ephesians last week talking about the relationship with our wives that we had studied in Ephesians 5. One of the things we talked about that I think resonated with all of us, hold your finger in 1 Corinthians 1 and just flip back to Ephesians 5 real quick. We, we spent some time talking about how our role as husbands, and I'm in Ephesians 5, I'll begin in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and blameless. And one thing we talked about is one of the responsibilities that God has given us as husbands is to be a, a leader with our wife and to also help our wife learn the scriptures. And so I'm going to encourage each of you, at least pray about it. Since we're beginning a new study here today on 1 Corinthians, this would be a great opportunity to then take what you learn and perhaps go home in some time this week. And as we go through Corinthians, just sit down with your wife, go through the same verses that we discuss, and maybe talk about what you learned. Just a suggestion, just something that came to my head this morning. I wanted to begin with that kind of thought in mind, just something to think about. So why don't we begin in prayer? I'll open us up. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this group. We thank you for this time that you've given us to be together to study your word. Thank you for those who are listening remotely. And we ask that you just open our hearts and minds this morning to read your word and understand it better. Open our ears so that we can hear and learn something new and not only learn it, but apply it to our lives. Help us take away something today that can continue to change us into the people that you want us to be, Father. And I ask that you speak through me, it not be my words, but yours, and also speak through each of the other people here during our discussion, that we can all learn from one another and truly represent you as we go back into the workplace and be the light to those around us where someone may just ask us, why it is that we're a little bit different? Where do we find that peace in our life so that we might have the opportunity to share the gospel with them? And we ask all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So 1 Corinthians. Always fun to start a new book. So here we go. Let me just set up the context a little bit for 1 Corinthians before we begin. 1 Corinthians was also written by Paul. To the church in Corinth. It was written in about 55 AD. So when you look at that timeline, that's about 20 to 25 years after Jesus's death. I don't know how much you know about Corinth. Corinth actually is a lot like Austin. It's like any big city that we see in our culture today. It's now Greece, west of Athens. It was very Roman, and it was part of a very important trade route. It had a reputation for a lot of sexual immorality, there was a lot of diversity, religious diversity, corruption. 
Even the temple of Aphrodite was there. You may recall that's the goddess of love. So there was a lot of immoral practices there. And of course, it being an important part of, of the Roman Empire, there was a lot of belief in human wisdom and human philosophy. That was a big deal, just like we see today right? It's all about human wisdom, getting yourself in a place so that you can achieve all the things that you are entitled to achieve and having your mind right. It's all this human wisdom rather than spiritual wisdom. And so Paul's going to talk about that. And he's going to talk about how they need to correct some of their moral errors. What was happening in the church at that time is there were beginning to be divisions. And these divisions were over issues such as our spiritual gifts, the actual resurrection, incest. There were disputes about how to go about church discipline. There was still idol worship. Remember it being a very Roman and pagan place with all this immorality. There were actually places that people believed you could go worship by having sex with a prostitute. It was crazy. He will eventually, for you lawyers who are here or listening in, uh, he's going to have something to say about lawsuits as well when we get into this. I think you'll find that interesting. But Paul had founded this church in Corinth, as you recall when we studied Acts during his second missionary journey. That was in about A.D. 49. Another thing that people find confusing is while this is called the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, this actually is not the first letter, okay? This is actually the second letter. That can be very confusing, and I'm going to explain that to you. And you know there's a second letter that follows the first letter in this book. That's actually not the second letter. That's actually the fourth letter. So let me explain that to you. Is he in prison? this time too? He is writing this while he's in Ephesus. Good question. He's writing this as we had studied in Acts during his third missionary journey that we read when we were in Acts 18 to 21. There was a letter that preceded this one that was lost. If you just look with me real quick, hold your place because we're going to come back to the first chapter. If you look over in chapter 5, 9, you can see he references this first letter. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, and he goes on and on. So actually what this letter is, is he's responding to questions that the people in Corinth had after receiving his first letter. There had been some disagreements and you might say negative reaction to some of what he had written in his first letter, which is lost. And then Paul writes then a third letter, as I explained to you, which is then the fourth letter that we'll see in Corinthians. You can see down in, we'll get there, but just I'm setting this up. And if you'll skip down and go back to chapter one, in verse 11, he says, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people. And I'll discuss that verse in a minute. But you see, he's, he's heard about this reaction that took place after his first letter that he's responding to now in 1 Corinthians. Then the church actually responded more positively to this and then to the third letter. And then he wrote the fourth letter, which we'll get to in 2 Corinthians. We'll maybe follow this study with 2 Corinthians. I'm just setting this up. Sometimes people get confused as to what these letters are, and, and so I wanted to set that up for you. Any questions regarding that? Okay, so let's begin 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, who wrote this, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God 
you recall that's a similar beginning that we read when we were in Ephesians. So he's saying that he was called as an apostle of Jesus Christ. You remember we studied Paul extensively in Acts. You'll recall Paul was a Christian terrorist. He was killing Christians, at least helping see that they were killed, we read about in Acts. And that's when then Jesus appeared to him and asked Paul, why are you persecuting me? And that uh, began Paul's conversion. And as we know, Paul then really became the apostle to the Gentiles and ended up writing about half of the New Testament. So that's why we continue to read so many of these books that were written by Paul. And then he references, he says, and Sosthenes, our brother, so let me tell you a little bit about him. He was a Jewish believer in Corinth, and it's believed that he was probably the one who served as the secretary for Paul to write, to actually write this letter as, as Paul dictated it to him. Those are the two people that Paul references now that are speaking now to the church in Corinth. To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Remember when we see Paul use the word saints, he's talking about believers. With all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So remember sanctified means set apart by God. And we've all been that. We've been set apart by God because of our faith, not by anything we did. You remember when we read in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it's by the grace of God that only by his grace, not by our works, and it's by our faith alone and Jesus Christ alone that give us our salvation. And so then in verse 3, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's beginning this letter exactly how we saw when we studied Ephesians. He said essentially the same thing in Ephesians 1, 2 where he said, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is, we should have peace in our lives now because of the grace that God has extended to us. The salvation, the assurance of our salvation that we have, we should have peace. And sometimes we don't live like that as Christians, but when we remember that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and he who lives in us is greater than he of the world, meaning that Satan. I mean, we've got the power of the Holy Spirit with us. We should always be at peace, knowing and trusting God that he's in control here, not us. So he goes on. He says, uh, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Jesus Christ. So we should also follow Paul's example. I was listening to a podcast this morning and he was talking about how we should live our lives so that we're trying to be more like Jesus. But what's really cool is Paul and other apostles served as the model that we should follow. Jesus lived a perfect life and showed us how to live, but it's people like Paul that actually show us how to get there because he's not perfect. And one of the things, when you see Paul doing things like he's describing, He's saying, I'm praying for you always and thanking God for the grace that was given to you. We ought to be praying for each other. I know we do that at these Bible studies, but we should be doing it outside of this. We hear the prayer request at the end, and we should keep those in mind and pray for each other. 
and thank God for each of us, for the part that each of you play in my life and each other's life. Verse 5, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge. I set this up by describing Corinth. You know, they took great pride in philosophy and human wisdom and and what Paul is saying is it's not about human wisdom. Human wisdom is not going to get you saved. What Paul is saying is that what's important is spiritual wisdom. That spiritual wisdom is what comes from God. That's the type of knowledge that we need. And the only way we get that is from God, not from pursuing human wisdom. Picking back up in verse 6. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember when we were in Ephesians? In fact, let's flip over there just real quick. Um, each of us, Ephesians 4, and I want you to look at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So you remember when we were there, we talked about we don't all receive the same gifts. We all have different gifts, all according to God's plan. And yet God wants us to use those gifts. We're all part of one body of Christ. We're all part of the church. But we all have different roles to play, and we've been given different gifts and so what Paul is talking about is that we're not lacking any gift to be able to perform what God wants us to do as part of his plan. And yet we all eagerly await the return of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, who shall also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have the assurance of our salvation as Christians. And as we continue our life here on earth, we're going through this sanctification process, just our process of going through the word here each week in this Bible study, not only learning more about our relationship with God and how we are to live our lives, not to gain our salvation, but in obedience and to give him honor and glory, but we should take away something when we go through our reading of the scripture that should change us because if you look back, if you've been a Christian for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and you feel like you're in the exact same place you were in your walk, in your relationship with Jesus Christ as you were 5, 10, 15 years ago, there's something terribly wrong. You ought to feel as if the Holy Spirit is working in your life to change you. That doesn't mean every day you're going to be better than you were the, the day before. Our flesh shows itself. Mine does many times throughout the day unfortunately, and uh, we're going to have periods of time where we fall back, but if you look back over your walk from the time you became a Christian to where you are today, there ought to be progress being made, or it's like we read in Ephesians, we're still just little children, and Paul told us we need to grow up, grow up, and apply the things that we're learning, because just knowledge is, that doesn't do any good. Just have sanctification, knowledge. right? Learn. Sanctification is this continual improvement to allow. I'm not talking about human philosophy of self-focus and meditation, getting yourself right. I, I'm talking about allowing the Holy Spirit to work in your life. And when things are pointed out in your life that you need to change, we need to be obedient and allow the Holy Spirit to change that in our life. So then we can focus on the next level of sin that's in our life 
that is causing us to quench the ability of the Holy Spirit to work in our life? Good question. Okay, so continuing on, uh, we're in verse 9. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. So he's saying he called us, and he's going to keep us safe until the end. We're assured of our salvation. Verse 10, now I exhort you, meaning I encourage you, I'm begging you, brethren, meaning all fellow believers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he's going to give us three things here, that you, number one, all agree, number two, that there be no division among you, and number three, that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. So let's look at what this says. If you go back and look at the literal translation of these three concepts that are mentioned here, when he says, when you all agree, it can be translated that you all speak the same. Okay, so does that mean that we never have any disagreements? No, that's not what he's talking about. We've talked about this before. When we were over in Romans 14, you remember we talked about how, in fact, let's just flip over there real quick. Romans chapter 14, verse 13. Go back over to the left. It's the book that precedes us here, Romans 13, right after Acts. Romans 14, let's begin at, at verse 13. Let me read this, and then it'll come back to you what we discussed. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean to him, it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the works of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Remember when we talked about this, how he was talking about food sacrificed to idols, but we also talked about alcohol in that context, where there's nothing in the Bible that says don't drink alcohol, but it does say don't get drunk. And if that's going to be a stumbling block for a brother, then even though we're free to do it, we should not be doing it in front of somebody who we know that's going to create a problem for. Maybe they struggle with alcohol, or maybe they view it as a sin, because it's a sin for them. Maybe God has put on their heart that he doesn't want one of us. Some of us don't drink because God's told us not to, and for us it would be a sin to do so. So, you know, if you question whether something is a sin for you, ask God. And if he says it's okay, then have at it. If he says it's not okay, then don't do it. But please don't do it, even though you have the freedom to do it. Don't do it if it's going to cause a brother to stumble or to say, gosh, I guess it's okay for me to get drunk because they don't understand. What he's talking about here is we should be of a like mind on the things that are really important, on doctrine that is basic doctrine. There's going to be some differences on the fringe, 
but don't get hung up on that. But let's get the basics, the things about Christ. Keep Christ in focus here. And let's not have disagreements about that. And, and we're going to see what some of those disagreements were here in just a second. That's what he's talking about. But he's saying we should be of the same mind. There shouldn't be, uh, and we should be united. That's another, when he says of the same mind, if you go back and look at the original text, it can be translated as united. So we should be united. We're one church. So now he's going to talk about some of the things that are causing these divisions in the church. He says, for I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, he's talking about the believers in Corinth, by Chloe's people, that there are many quarrels among you. A couple of things, I went back, who is this Chloe? This appears to be the only place that she is mentioned in the New Testament. She's obviously a Christian woman appears to be well known to Paul and most likely well known to these believers in Corinth because he doesn't even need to give her last name. But she didn't come to Paul gossiping. She came to Paul because she saw that there were these divisions beginning to happen in the church and she could tell the believers needed help understanding just what was the correct teaching. And so she and her people had come and asked Paul for help the way they had responded to his first letter. Verse 12, now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, Cephas is Peter, or I'm of Christ. So there were all these personality type divisions. They were starting to splinter and saying, well, it was Paul who converted me, and I'm a follower of Paul's teaching, or no, it was really Peter who had converted me and baptized me, and I'm not a follower of Paul. I'm a follower of Peter and, and what Peter teaches. And so there were these divisions beginning to happen in the church. Paul's saying, that's total nonsense. These types of divisions are contrary to what Christ had taught, and it's contrary to Christ, one body of Christ, one church of believers. Larry, who's Apollos? Apollos was another, we read about Apollos in Acts, and he was another follower that also performed some baptisms, and okay. he, he was another person working in the church to help others. And the divisions at this time were not as clear, like as Baptist, Protestants, Methodists. No, they didn't have denominations like that, but there were, you could say there were some similarities in that there were these divisions beginning to happen where people were adding things to what had been taught by the apostles. No, they didn't have this New Testament. There were parts of it that were beginning to be copied and, and sent and circulated, and these letters were being circulated, but they didn't have what we have. And so People were beginning to add things to it, and there was some confusion. And of course, there were many Jewish people who had been converted to Christianity that were then still bringing in some of the Jewish practices, thinking that that was required. We've spent a lot of time talking about circumcision and things like that, that those things were still required. You had to do that before you could become a Christian. What Paul's doing is clarifying some of these. This says some of the issues were libertinism, the relation of men and women in the church, food laws, speaking in tongues, yes. and resurrection of the dead. Yes, incest, lawsuits, we're going to get into all of that. Paul continues in verse 13, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus 
and Gaius. And we could go look over there. You could go back to Acts 18.8 for those of you taking notes. That's where Crispus is mentioned. And, and Gaius is also referred to as Gaius Titius Justus. You can read about him in Acts 7 and also in Romans 16.23. <laughs> Paul goes on, he says, I'm so glad that I didn't baptize any of you, and he continues in 15, that no man should say that you were baptized in my name. So he's saying it's wrong to be trying to say that, gosh, I was baptized by Peter, so I must be better than you because you were only baptized by Apollos or somebody else. And he's saying that's all wrong. This is all about Christ. It's not about human wisdom or, or human activity. Verse 16, now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. He'll talk about that more when we get over in chapter 16. If you're taking notes, it's 1 Corinthians 16, 15. He says, now I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Uh, so he knows his role. He was sent to preach not to baptize. Now, he did baptize. There were times when he baptized. He's not saying that baptizing people shouldn't be done, but he's saying his job was to preach, and that's what he did. That was his main function. Paul knows what his role is. Paul knows what his calling is. He knows what he's been called to do, and I've challenged myself and this group many times. It's important for us to understand what our calling is. What are we called to do? What are the spiritual gifts that God's given us? And how does he want us to use those in the positions that he's given us, wherever we are, whatever jobs we have, whatever our friendships we have, whatever our relationships we have? How does God want to use us in our gifts in the positions that he has placed us in? Paul knew. Paul knew what his role was. So he's saying, thank goodness I didn't baptize any of you because I don't want any of you trying to say you're special because you're a follower of Paul. He's saying it ain't about Paul, it's about Jesus Christ. And he continues, he says in verse 17, he was sent to preach the gospel, listen to what he says, not in cleverness of speech that the cross of Christ should not be made void. So he's saying, look, I'm not one of these eloquent orators that are out here giving all this philosophy and espousing all this human wisdom that everybody wants to hear. And he said, that's not me. That human wisdom and philosophy of the day, you're going to see, we're going to get to it. It's going to be destroyed. It's going away. That's not what's important. So I didn't come and speak with eloquence and cleverness of speech. I came and just spoke the word of God. You see what he says here, verse 18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. There were so many people that were into the human wisdom and philosophy. They hear all this stuff about Jesus dying on the cross and being crucified and buried and raised from the dead. That's like, that's foolishness. How, how is that going to help you? And their ears were closed. They had the hardening of the heart that we've talked about before. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. That was foolishness to them. But boy, human wisdom. What does this sound like? Does this sound like what we see on television every day? Is, is this the culture we live in? It's all about human wisdom? Absolutely. Or just go walk down the street or go somewhere and just say the name Jesus and watch people's reaction. It's like, whoa, 
can't say that here. This is about human wisdom. That's foolishness. It was that way. Some things don't change. It's that way in Corinth. So he says, for the word of the, in verse 18, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing, meaning unbelievers, it's foolishness. Unbelievers view the word of God as just nothing but foolishness. But listen to what he says. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So he's pitting human wisdom versus spiritual wisdom. And really, your view of the cross, whoever you are, it really tells whether you're in the process of being saved or if you're going down the path of being eternally separated from God, which is really a sad thing. So he goes on. Yes. I mean, I feel like everything is purposeful here, but he says, for those of us who are being saved, that, that am I taking this correctly, that we are in a constant uh, state of being saved, that we're constantly being sanctified, being in process? Yeah, and so let me clarify some of the words that you used. We are saved as soon as we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And we are justified. We receive the Holy Spirit. There's many places where Paul assures us of our salvation. Jesus even said, I won't lose a single one. And so we're assured of our salvation. But we're not Christ-like yet. Okay? Okay. And that's the sanctification process. As we live our life... We're becoming more, we should be becoming more and more Christ-like as we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our life. And we even talked about how our wives can help us through the sanctification process and how we can help our wives through the sanctification process as the Holy Spirit works through us to help our wife and works through our wife to help rub off those rough edges that they know us better than anybody. It might be helpful to know there's three words for saved that are, mean different things. So justification is where God declares the sinner righteous on the basis of grace by means of faith. So by your faith, God says, you sinner, I declare you righteous. Now you are not, your life is still a disaster. Sanctification is the process by which God makes the believer righteous over time and that's the being saved here and then one day you'll be fully saved that's called glorification so you got that's when you're gonna have you'll be saved from the presence of sin so justification saves you from the penalty of sin sanctification helps you overcome the power of sin and then glorification is where you um, are free from the presence of sin beautiful okay but why does he use the term those two words together being saved it's what chris is saying is that it is that's how that word is being translated but it's actually that word can mean the three things that chris just described larry you might also want to point out here that the simple the simple greek here is 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 this is that to us who are saved it is the power of god that's the simplest way to translate Yes, just leave the being out. And when you put the being in there, that's what the translators, this particular translators have done. Okay, okay. Thanks. That's good. Thanks. Thanks for that discussion. Very helpful. Now we're going to see that Paul is going to reference some prophecy that is in Isaiah. Uh, When we were studying Isaiah, maybe you'll recall some of this. Verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise... And the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. So guess what? 
all this great philosophy and all this human wisdom that everybody prides themselves on and that we see on the various news channels, guess what? It's going to be destroyed. It's not even going to be here. It's worthless. Yet so many people pride themselves on all this human wisdom. That You're talking human wisdom, like self-help books and all that other garbage yes. that, that yes. we're being bombarded by yes. every day. He goes on in verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? And he's saying, once Jesus comes back and everything is restored to the way it should be, there's not even going to be anything for the scribes to write down about this human knowledge that exists today. It's going to be gone, vanish, poof, it's gone. Where's the debater of this age? Debater, that's someone who argues based on human wisdom and philosophy. And what jumped out in my head is just all the people you see on TV right now with the impeachment trial, <laughs> just all this stuff, they're, they're just these great wise people. It's all just garbage. All that's going to go away. It's all going to go away. These great debaters, <laughs> worthless. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So he's saying, you didn't come to your faith through the wisdom of the world. That's not how you got your faith. He's turning it around. You know, the, this foolish message that the people who pride themselves on human wisdom, they think this message is foolish, and God was just fine using that foolish message to save us. That's how we've been saved. Peace, joy, harmony, it's out of reach for those who try to go after that by pursuing human wisdom rather than spiritual wisdom. People that pride themselves with their human wisdom, they don't know God in a saving way. And he's basically saying, without a personal re relationship with Jesus Christ, they're just trusting their own truth. And there's no way you're ever going to get right with God through your own wisdom. It's just not going to happen. God's message is foolishness to those who pride themselves with their own human wisdom. Verse 22, for indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. Wow. Jews continually ask Jesus for more miracles. You remember that? They were never satisfied, and most of them did not believe. In the Greeks, on the other hand, they prided themselves on philosophy and hu human wisdom. And that's what they wanted to debate and have all these debates and what have you. And that's not what spiritual wisdom is all about. He goes on, he says in verse 23, but we preach, he's giving the contrast, not human wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which to the Jews is a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. God's wisdom is just foolishness to the pride of human wisdom. And the Jews, they couldn't comprehend that the Messiah King would be crucified on the cross. That was a stumbling block for them. You look over in Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, it talks about a man that's hung on a tree is cursed by God. And that created a stumbling block for the Jewish people to see that Jesus was placed on the cross. And they couldn't see through that to see that he rose again, even though he was seen by you know, well over 500 people in the resurrection. Verse 25, because the foolishness of God 
is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So people can't rescue themselves just by utilizing their human wisdom. He says, 26, for consider your calling, brethren, what were you called to do, believers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. I love this. Listen to what he's saying. Jesus didn't come here in the first believers, and really when you look around, I certainly fall into this category. It's not the celebrities. It's not the rich. It's not the people that have prestige. Now, there's some saved people, but by and large, when you look at the people who are believers, they're the low. And it's when we start as believers starting to think we're all that, we want to be that, that's not what God intended. God intends to call the lowly as believers to shine a light on the unbelieving people who think they're all that. Look at that. I mean, this, this ought to, if this doesn't humble you, if this doesn't make you want to be more humble than maybe you, you thought you were when you walked in the door, listen to what it says. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble that God chose. Think of the first disciples, the, the apostles. Most of them were fishermen. And then you had Matthew, who was a tax collector. That was the low of the low. Look at who Jesus hung out with. He called the low, not the Pharisees, not the religious leaders, not the people who thought they were better than everybody else. The low of the low. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That's our calling. The wise being celebrities, wealthy, the intelligent, the people who we would view as having prestige. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, which I'll say I would add, I know I'm not supposed to add to the, to the word, but the, I'd say that's the people who think they're strong, okay? God's strength is shown through weak and humble people. That's where God's strength is shown. Verse 28, in the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are. And so he's saying that there's no reason for Christians to be divided. The people who God has called to be believers we should be one. And by the way, I think he's also saying that it should not be our goal to now become elite. You know, say, oh, well, I'm a Christian. I'm better than you or I'm better than somebody else. He wants to use the weak to shame those who think they're strong. We shouldn't put ourselves in our own mind thinking we're all that because God selects the lowly to shame the wise. And he goes on in 21, that no man should boast before God. So no one has the right to boast. Everything we have, God has given to us by his grace. Our job, our money, everything, our family, our friends. Again, referencing back to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's by God's grace alone, our faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. Our works contribute nothing to it. And so we should be very humble because of that verse 30 by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God 
and righteousness, as Chris was describing, and sanctification, as Chris described, and redemption, as Chris described, as glorification, will be redeemed. We've been purchased. Redemption is purchased. We've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ bore our sins so that we could have right standing, be declared righteous before God. We contributed nothing to it other than our need for God's grace. He's saying because of that, we should be reconciled to one another and we should come together in unity. He finishes up verse 31. Just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So all our boasting, even when good things happen to us, I mean, look, I'm going to tell you, God's blessed my life. I've got a lot of nice stuff. But it's when I start thinking, wow, I really worked hard for that stuff. I'm boasting for myself. It's when I look at the things God has blessed me with and I just go, wow, God, you have blessed my life far beyond what I could have ever imagined, which is the absolute truth. I am so thankful. I'm boasting in the Lord. I'm giving glory to to the Lord. And I'm not telling you I get that right all the time. Uh, None of us do. But that's what Paul is calling us to do. Give glory to God when we're blessed. Don't give glory to ourselves and elevate ourselves and let that cause division, thinking that we're better than other people because of something we did. We should remember we're the lowly. We're the lowly and the humble that God has called, and he wants to use us in that lowly and humble state to bring shame to those the celebrities and the people who think they're all that. They boast upon themselves. Yes. What's some of the application that we can take away from this today? How can we apply this to our own lives? Everything we have is in God. Don't take ourselves too seriously. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? I really, uh, verse 21 really resonates with me, sort of as a father, thinking about God the Father. My translation says, For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. I just think about sometimes when my more stubborn of my children says well I'm going to do X and I say well no X is not going to work and you go back and forth a little bit and you finally say okay fine go ahead and do X and you got to kind of figure it out on your own uh, it's, it's interesting to me to think about God uh, with this grand design and God the Father kind of having a similar plan like, go yeah. ahead and try with the wisdom of man to see if it works but, but it's not going to work it's not going to work knock yourselves out but right. that's not it yeah and is this not our culture is this not what we see out there every day? Bombarded. Bombarded. Bombarded with these devices and television and well, good ex- in the streets. Good example is Kobe Bryant. I mean, every time, everywhere you turn, it's Kobe Bryant this and Kobe Bryant that. Yeah. It's like the guy cheated on his wife in Colorado or what? You know, I mean, he wasn't not not that we you know yeah. we're perfect, but it's amazing how the, much the they're worship. showering this guy with. Yes. Worship and praise, and which is what happens to a lot of these celebrities, is we weren't built. God didn't make us to get all this worship and praise from other men and women. And that starts happening, and then we start believing it ourselves. And I'm not saying that happens with all celebrities, but by and large, most of them, they go off the deep end because they start believing, yeah, you know, maybe I am all that and all special, and they start having drug problems and all kinds of issues. We see it, and yet the worship continues to pour out for them rather than for God. I do love it when you see athletes 
especially on live camera after a football game or whatever it is. And, you know, it's live, so they can't cut it out. And the first thing they say is, well, the first thing I want to do is give glory to God. And, of course, they try to change the subject really quick most of the time. But uh, Dabo Sweeney is great at it. Love listening to him. I still think about the national championship game, Colton Thorpe after the loss. First thing he said, I don't remember exactly what he said, but I remember the, the power of what he said in that, that interview after the game. That he was, he was standing on the rock of the Lord, gave him strength. The, my, my Bible references over to Luke 10, 21, with the verse you just mentioned. It reads very similarly, at the time Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. So I thought that was an interesting parallel passage on that same point. And you know, the more unbelievers just continue to reject the word, the more difficult it becomes for them to even hear it. It's like anything. You just almost get to where... They set up a mental wall. It's a mental block. That's what's described as your heart becomes so hardened, you just can't even hear it anymore. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.